This episode of Remnant Radio is brought to you in part by our sponsors at Kairos Classrooms. Have you ever thought about learning a biblical language as a supplemental tool in your biblical studies? Well, Kairos Classrooms offers real classroom environments with with classmates and a live instructor who can help teach you biblical languages, both Greek and Hebrew. You need to check out Kairos Classrooms today. Uh, The price for a single semester is crazy affordable for anyone, so check out the links in the description and use promo code REMNANT to get 10% off Kairos Classrooms. Check out Kairos Classrooms today. Discount code R-E-M-N-A-N-T, REMNANT, to get 10% off your semester. Hey, everybody. Welcome to the wonderful world of Remnant Radio. Today, we're talking about Culture of Honor once more. Uh, we're going to be tackling some of the stuff that we didn't get to last time. We covered three and a half of our six or seven points. So uh, we're going to cover the rest of that today. It's going to be an exciting program. You guys stay tuned. You are watching The Remnant Radio, a crowd-funded show where we interview pastors, teachers, historians, and theologians from different churches and denominations. My name is Joshua Lewis, and this is my co-host, Michael Roundtree. Together, we want to help you break outside of your theological echo chambers. If you're interested in learning about history, theology, or the gifts of the Spirit, this is the show for you. Hey, everybody. I hope you uh, are ready. We've got a great program for you today. Michael and Michael are with us. We're going to be talking about The Culture of Honor. It's a book written by Danny Silk and has been um, really a blueprint for many in the charismatic movement. There are a few things we disagree with. Uh, you know, there's some things that we like about it, uh, but there's a couple things that are really concerning that we want to kind of push back against in this episode. But before we dive into that, I want to remind you that Remnant Radio is entirely crowdfunded. So if you want to support the channel, you can do that. You can give a one-time gift on PayPal. Uh, or you can be a reoccurring giver on Patreon. If you choose to give on Patreon as low as five bucks a month, you get access to extra content. Uh, we, there's other ways that you can maybe support the channel as well, like this really dope conference that we have coming up in March, March what? 24th. We're doing this uh, this legit conference out in North Carolina uh, at a church. I'm the only one smiling in that picture. You, but you're the I only one that has anything to smile about in that picture, Michael. So uh, you, you. <laughs> You what does that mean? To, you get to be at a conference with the Michael Miller. That's what I'm trying to say. And uh, <laughs> and the rest of us are just not as impressed. Anyway, um, I'm just kidding. I don't know. I was just picking that up as I went. Uh, it's okay. So you should totally register for that. There are links in the description of this video, whether you're listening on the podcast or you're, you're watching uh, here on YouTube. Uh, if you go now, I think you still have a discount. Uh, and if you're on Patreon and you want to go to this conference, there is a promo code for the conference that I published today on Patreon. So can't share that here, uh, but you can go over there to Patreon and get that promo code. Anyway, uh, without further ado, guys, how are y'all doing? Doing good over here in the Oklahomies. Uh, yeah, I'm getting, uh, I'm excited this weekend. We have a, actually a couple things. I'm going hiking with my son for his 13th birthday mm-hmm. in Denver with Michael Miller and uh leaving tomorrow actually can get back on saturday and then jack deer is in town and we're going to do a growing in the gifts church at our uh church in oklahoma city uh and we'll do a saturday night sunday morning sunday night kind of thing on gifts of the holy spirit so uh super excited about that and then uh to continue this conversation too i had a lot of people from my church uh say to me this week how valuable the discussion was that we had last week about culture of honor I'm like, well, you need to check out part two because this is going to be a good episode. Miller, how are you doing over there in Denver? Probably just waiting on pins and needles for me to arrive, huh? Yeah, naturally. That's all I do is I wait around all year long just in the hopes that you'll come one day. And it's because I have a key to the basement. Finally come. That's right. <laughs> That's right. Uh, so I'm doing good. I uh, Yesterday morning, I flew out to Dallas to do a podcast 
with Robbie Dawkins on uh, toxic culture, toxic church culture, uh, where we actually dive into a little bit of my story because he and I were at the same church for a little bit. And he was probably one of the few people to uh, have my back in the midst of all of that. So that was interesting. And then, um, man, I got a lot going on. You got stuff. Yeah, you're coming to town. We're doing a hike. I'm solo with the kids all weekend. Wife is heading out to Memphis, uh, well, down to Oxford, Mississippi to go visit her family. And then, um, and then she and I are going down to Tampa for a few days for some ministry stuff. And then I fly to the Dominican Republic for a vacation. So I got a lot going on. Man, kind of exciting. One day I want to grow up. I want to be as important as Michael Miller and do all the cool things that he does. Uh, I'd love yeah. to fly out to another state just to go to a podcast. That'd be dope. Uh, anyway, uh, guys, that's what allowed me to put some show notes together. Yeah. <laughs> but, and, and the thing is, is, on that plane with this show, uh, Roundtree mentioned this. I think all of us have probably gotten more feedback on that video than nearly oh, yeah. any video that we've done. Like personal friends have reached out to us. People I haven't heard from in years have reached out and said, Hey man, I guess I didn't realize how much this book really affected the culture or affected the church that I, I was going to. The kind of things that were being said on the show, the quotes that you were reading were things that I heard a lot of in my local church. I didn't realize it was so impacted by this book. Um, and, and it's not like our most viewed video by any stretch of the imagination. However, uh, it's definitely impacted the people who've been watching, who've been kind of following in this charismatic space. So, uh, you know, today, we, you know, we, we covered a lot of stuff in our last video, kind of give you an expectation of what we're going to cover today. We're talking about the gifts as personalities and offices. That's one of the things that's really pushed by culture of honor that we really disagree with. Um, another thing that we're going to be tackling today is, is teachers being demonized. We read one or two quotes last week about teachers being demonized, but there's just a litany of quotes in here. Uh, we're also going to talk about unsubstantiated claims. Things are just said in this book as if they were fact, but are just not backed up at all uh, by scripture or even said, hey, this is my opinion. It's just boom. This or is even the way statistics. That it is. Yeah. So evidence of some sort. And then finally, if we have time, we're going to close off with some of the, the stuff there on church discipline. So uh, Roundtree, do you want to you take us off with one of those quotes in uh, personalities or offices? Yes, I am dying to, um, <laughs> which means I wasn't ready. Okay, here it is. <laughs> He's like reading the comment section again. <laughs> okay, uh, there's a couple here. One is, hopefully this scenario displays the reality that each anointing is also a mindset. Each anointing determines how a person will see various circumstances and situations and as a result, makes different solutions available and applicable to the same uh, the same situation. So I remember uh, that he shares this example of like, hey, if you're at a at the scene of a car wreck, an apostle is going to respond like this, and a prophet's going to respond like that, an evangelist and a pastor and a teacher, and all of them, it's kind of like, oh, well, the pastor he's going to be all caring for people, and the teacher's going to be like, well, here's what you know happened, trying to explain it, and the apostle, and and so he applies this as sort of like this all-consuming sort of personality totality way of viewing the world a, a lens through which uh the person with these giftings views all things and i just i just think there's uh, first of all there's nothing in any of these texts to suggest that these giftings are personalities i had a personality before i was ever gifted by the holy spirit right. the gifts of the holy spirit are given at the moment of conversion First uh, Corinthians twelve eleven, the Spirit gives gifts as He desires. First Peter four ten 
to 11 says that each one receives a spiritual gift, uh, some for speaking, some for serving, seems to be the two categories that Peter offers us uh, uh, for spiritual gifts. But, but the point being that these come to us at the moment of conversion. I didn't have a spiritual gift uh, before that. And consequently, it doesn't make sense to equate them to personalities. Second of all, personalities and gifts, they're, they're different because, uh, because where was I trying to go with this? I, I was thinking about like, say, take Myers-Briggs, you know, uh, you're an ENTJ or an INTJ or, or whatever this thing is. And, uh, and to equate that to a gift, which is an empowerment for ministry versus a way of kind of viewing situations in the world, it's just apples to oranges. So I don't like it, guys. I, I don't, don't like, like it. it. Also, it's probably coming from Danny's counseling background to begin with, right? where he's quite familiar with personality types, having done a lot of studying on those things and how people respond to various stimulus. And so here he is sort of projecting the same thing. But to be fair to Danny, he's not the one who's invented this idea. This idea that the, right. the gifts or personalities is, I mean, it's been around for a long time. But I think that the main thing that you could just say, which Michael has already said, is it's not because it's given to you at the moment you convert. Not, and your personality is part of who you are when you're born. And your personality changes over time. Yeah. Um, that's another big thing. Right. Is I'm and, not the same person I am today or that I was when I got married. Right. And I, I also think it discounts the way the gifts kind of bleed over one into another. Paul was an apostle, but was he not also a teacher? And was he not also yeah, an evangelist? Uh, in, in a way, even though pastors is one of the five, all of them pastor in one way or another, right? Like, it, I mean, for the teacher, uh, feeding the flock is part of how you're shepherding them. There's there's a pastoral way. It was whenever we had uh, Josh. I'm trying to remember who it was that we had on the show. Was talking about the fivefold. It was like a year ago. Uh, anyway, it doesn't matter. But he was talking about you know shepherding. It, it actually goes with all of them. If you're an apostle, like you're shepherding people. If you're a if you're a prophet, you're trying to share words in a way that shepherds people. Um, and and so I do believe that's not to discount. There are distinctions. I'm just saying that when we turn these into like hardline buckets over which there is zero overlap, I think we we start to create problems and we pigeonhole people into a certain way of operating. Yeah, and let me let me kind of jump on the tail end of that because this specific phrase, each anointing determines how a person will see various That's circumstances right. and situations. This is what's really important because we are not commanded as teachers to see circumstances and situations as teachers. We are not commanded as prophets to see situations as prophets. We're actually commanded to have the mind of Christ and to judge situations by the perfect law of God, right? So we actually have a blueprint of how we're supposed to think and how we're supposed to believe and how we're supposed to act. And then to say that you're going to act this way and you're going to act that way. And as you're going to see as we go through the demonizations of the teachers, what they'll say is that the teacher's uh, perspective the, 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 on certain situations and circumstances is inferior to that of apostles. And I think what we really need to realize is that all of us, all of our opinions, all of the way that we see situations are inferior to the way that Christ sees those situations. And it's our desire as any kind of leader in the body of Christ that our opinions and our perspectives would die out to 
Christ's opinions, in Christ's perspectives. Uh, secondly, someone in this, the comment section is is uh, That's what I was going to ask about suggesting that there are personality types that are given to us by birth. It's an argument that I heard a lot growing up as a kid. There are charismata that are given uh, in 1 Corinthians chapter 12. These are gifts for empowerment and service. Then they would say that Ephesians 4, they're offices. They are jobs that are facilitated within the local church. And then they would move over to Romans 12 and say, these are kind of uh, natural gifts. Uh, these, these are gifts that God gives you at birth. The problem yeah. is, is that those are unbiblical distinctions that are forced upon the text. And in fact, each of those texts have gifts that are interchangeable. For example, prophecy is found in Romans 12, it's found in 1 Corinthians 12, and it's found in Ephesians chapter 4. None of those uh, have any kind of distinction that says there's a kind of prophecy that you can get at birth. Uh, none of them say that there's a kind of prophecy uh, that you can operate in some kind of governmental authority in Ephesians 4. It just says that the gift equips people, the gift edifies people. Uh, the gift uh, is given by God in this, this this body that we have in the body of Christ. So these are just unbiblical distinctions that people are trying to rationalize. Okay, these are just different. He gives different lists. That's it. They're all for yeah. the same purpose. They're all given by God. And just finally, there's just the doctrine of inseparable operations. You don't have the gifts of the Father, the gifts of the Son, and the gifts of the Spirit as if they're distinct operations. When the Father gives a gift, the Son and Spirit are present in that giving of that gift as well. Um, we don't believe that there are three gods in heaven that are just kind of doing their own thing independent from one, uh, one another. They're actually actively involved in all of their activities. Um, that, that's a very non-Trinitarian view of these gifts of the Spirit to hold that position. And I'm not, I'm not calling anyone non-Trinitarian. I want to be very clear. I just want to say I don't think people realize that teaching that right. way affects the doctrine of the Trinity. Right. Yeah. And there are lots of, I mean, whether you look at uh, creation, whether you look at redemption or even Christ's resurrection, you see that same sort of inseparable operations of the Trinity where sometimes it's the father who raised Jesus from the dead, Acts 2. Sometimes Jesus says that he's, you know, destroy this temple and I'll raise it again in three days. So Jesus raises himself from the dead or Romans chapter eight, the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead. And so inseparable operations of the Trinity, this all goes together. And so making such a distinction between the Father and the Son and the Spirit and the giving of gifts is, is a false dichotomy. Um, I want to read this next quote. As I've been hinting, he says, the critical flaw I see in the American design for church uh, structure and government, though it's not limited to America, is disorder, meaning that the roles and relationships of leaders are out of order. According to the scripture, the foundation and leadership of most churches today consist of pastors, teachers, and administrators. We've empowered the wrong portion of the, uh, of the list in 1 Corinthians 12 to be primary leaders, and the reasoning behind this decision is not spiritual, but earthly. Uh, I, I couldn't disagree with this more. The ranking in 1 uh, Corinthians 12 that he's referring to, where God gave first apostles, second prophets, third teachers, and then so on, uh, is not meant to say who are the primary leaders of the church. I believe in context, he's talking about how these gifts edify the body, that uh, the apostolic functioning and prophetic and teaching, they do have kind of different degrees and capacities for edifying. That's my interpretation. There are other interpretations, but I don't think a permissible interpretation is that he's ranking them in priority of leadership, that these people, apostles are first boss, uh, prophets are second boss. Reminds me of when I was a little kid. I, you know, my, my brothers and I, we dug this like 
underground fort in their backyard. And I came home with my parents and I, was, I told them, I was bragging to them. They're like, what'd you all do all day? I was like, I dug a hole and I'm second boss of the hole. I was so proud of that. That's not what's happening here. Okay. It's not like who's first boss of the <laughs> hole. You were assistant to the regional manager. The That's right. <laughs> um, th this is not ranking leadership because what he's suggesting is that prophets are the boss of teachers, uh, but absolutely not. Um, the, what, what he calls as an unbiblical and an unspiritual and an even earthly model turns out to be the model that the scripture promotes, where elders are to be the pastors, teachers, the shepherds over the body. That's 1 Timothy 5, among other places. And so, um, and, and so guys, I don't, I, I, I really struggle with that. I think he's trying to be scriptural. He says, uh, these are out of order according to Scripture. I think Danny cares about the Scripture. I think he loves God. Uh, but I think he misses it big on this one. And the danger is that you end up with a CEO boss-like apostle at the top who's not accountable to anyone. It avoids a plurality of leadership, which is a huge New Testament priority. And this apostle just comes with his vision or this prophet comes with his vision. And somebody can get a spontaneous revelation from God that guides the church. And it's not been approved by the elders. And I just think it gets real crazy real fast if we follow this interpretation of the scripture. Well, I also think that that, that, that was that first sentence it talks about structure and government. The American design for church, the structure in government, uh, what we what we probably don't pick up on in the West is the idea that the word pastor is used as the governing position. So like if I just say the word pastor, everyone who hears me on YouTube, 90% of them think the leader of the church. If I say my pastor said da 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 da, they think the senior leader of this movement said this. And, and that's why I think part of this is difficult is because we've been using the word pastor for so long and, and the word pastor is in the New Testament one time. It's here in Ephesians 4 um, and it just means shepherd. And it makes sense that we would use this idea of shepherd as like a, someone who's like governing and watching and caring for sheep and like protecting them. Like it, it kind of makes sense why we've used that word. But I think a more common New Testament word would be elder, right? We have a person who's overseeing the church and that that elder is, is gifted in different ways. Some of them are, are shepherds and some of them are more prophetically gifted and some of them, uh, you know, are evangelistic in their giftings. Uh, but I think part of this is Danny's coming in to a Western context where the word pastor means church leader. And then he's taking that idea and then seeing, well, if this means leader and he's fourth in the list, then we've got this all structured wrong. The problem is, is he's kind of adopted an American context and an American governmental system uh, in the language of that system, and then trying to do like a one-to-one -one correlation uh, with the other gifts and assuming that they have some kind of structure assigned to them as well, where we're coming to this context saying the people that govern the local church are, are elders and deacons. These are the people who, who lead and govern within the local body. And those elders and deacons are gifted in a plurality of different ways in Ephesians 4, 1 Corinthians 12, and Romans 12. So so I think that he's he's reducing these down to governmental positions, which makes sense in the West when we talk about pastors as our leaders. So, I mean, I kind of want to, I kind of um, sympathize with him because this is something that I deeply believed and I kind of fell into this exact kind of mode of thinking, um, you know, m years ago when I was in uh, a different vein of Christendom. Uh, and it, it made sense how someone would take some of those thoughts and come to those same conclusions. So so I'm sympathetic to him, even though I strongly disagree. 
Uh, Miller, do you have any yeah. thoughts there? Uh, just a quick one. The fact that he calls this structure that he's uh, the, any structure other than his own, he calls it uh, earthly. That's, that's incredibly strong language. I don't know if he realizes just how strong it is mm -hmm. um, because what it just says is I have this ecclesiology that, that I've rediscovered that has been long lost for 2000 years is uh, actually what's really spiritual. Everything else is earthly, which another way of phrasing that according to James is natural and demonic. He puts those three words together, earthly, natural, demonic, when it comes to a certain type of wisdom, like selfish ambition and, and those kind of things. Um, and I, I think the thing is, Danny, is he's very much responding to a problem he sees in the church. He's just responding uh, with a wrong solution that's mm -hmm. actually creating a much bigger problem. And I think we're going to get into it further. That's that's good insight. Uh, would you guys want to jump into this next section on demonizing teachers? We quoted I think one single quote from this last week, but we have a, a litany yeah. of collections of quotes here. Do you want to get into this? Yeah, yes. Miller, why don't, you, why don't you start us off on that? Yeah, sure thing. Uh, okay, so here's a quote. Uh, when heaven is the model for our culture, the primary, primary result is peace. Peace is the goal of heaven because it is the primary quality of the government of God. But the disordered forms of government to which we've all become accustomed create not peace, but control, which is their intended goal. Man has the opposite goal of heaven. Earth's leadership structure is motivated by the desire to protect the rule of those in office. When we, primar when we primarily structure the environment of God's house to protect the will of the people, we've stepped off the path of the wisdom from above. Again, he's using the language from James, James wisdom from above, which is spiritual, versus that which is from the earth which is natural and demonic which i again this is very like strong language i don't think he understands how much he just demonized most of the churches that actually have a biblical ecclesiology for, for, you know for instance any church that has a plurality of elders um but then there's some other things in here that are really bothersome uh and 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 honestly quite frustrating because the very thing he's talking about like the peace that he wants and how the, the earthly governments that he's referring to, how they always create sort of an inner circle um, or a leadership, what does he say? A leadership structure motivated by the desire to protect the rule of those in office. I hate to say it, but this is exactly what I saw in a church that implemented Danny's mm -hmm. ecclesiology. Like it was, everybody was trying to get close to the apostolic leader because right. proximity to the apostolic leader meant more of heaven. Um, right. So he so takes it quite literally creates sycophants. Right. So that wisdom from above, I mean, the context of James three is selfish ambition, the desire to get ahead. And, and so he, Danny sees in like the apostle at the top and maybe apostle and second prophet at the top, something inherently humble about that. Or maybe he's not even looking at it from the position of selfish ambition, but selfish ambition is the actual category of James 3. And so what I hear you saying, Michael, is that what James 3 is warning us against, that demonic wisdom that Danny says is inherent, the demonic wisdom of selfish ambition that Danny says is inherent inside of uh, the pastor, teacher, elder leadership model, you're saying is actually exhibited in his model. So rather than being inherent in this one, you, you saw it in the other, my understanding you right. Yeah, I'm, not, 
I'm not the only one I would say that's seen this. I mean, the number of people I've spoken to who have come through churches, uh, albeit even Bethel churches, um, that have experienced the very same thing where value added is only in proximity to the top tier leadership, the prophet and the apostle of that church. And it really does result in a CEO thing, but but it also means, um, and here's the other thing about this, is everybody else's opinion is disqualified because the apostle is the one saying things in heaven. Yeah. And so the only way your opinion is ever going to be heard is if you're actually close to that apostle. Um, and usually the way that happens is by being a sycophant, telling that person what he wants to hear and honoring the prophet, which is like praising everything they say. Um, and if you criticize it, then really you're probably a teacher, a Pharisee with a critical <laughs> spirit. Uh, I hate to say it, but that, that no, really is it, what's happening. You're correct. I mean, 5E, this quote here that, that we have collected, it says, uh, when we focus solely on the word, he's talking about teachers here, eventually we'll begin, uh, uh, right amongst ourselves. We'll fight amongst ourselves over the word. So, so remember earlier when he talked about, there are some that focus on peace, right? Because they're they're, they have a heavenly minded apostles and prophets are heavenly minded and they're all about the kingdom, right? Whereas pastors and teachers are about the people and the doctrine. That's earthly stuff. The heavenly minded guys, the Bible says of his kingdom uh, and of his peace, there will be no end. So there's something about the kingdom that that brings peace. But the pastors and teachers, they're worried about people and, and people want to quibble over doctrine and teachings, right? So he says this, he says, we begin to pull apart the body of Christ because there is a right and a wrong. Each teacher is, comp uh, is compelled to be right. As Paul said to the Corinthians, we have many teachers in the body of Christ. Uh, and when the teachers disagree, and many do, there is division. So here, do you see that? If, if, if teachers all get around, there will be doctrinal disunity because we'll disagree about the way that we're reading scripture. And that's division, right? When, when teachers begin to disagree and wrestle with the scriptures and talk with one another about their disagreements in these areas, that creates division and anti-peace. Leaders after, uh, sorry, uh, leader after leader begins to assert his or her uh, case of doctrine and theology and builds a case to prove uh, his or her disapproval of the others. So again, Man, forget the Nicene Creed then. Forget yeah. the Apostles' Creed. Forget the Chalcedonian definition. Actually, forget all these things called ecumenical councils where they did argue That's right. and came to some conclusions. Um, you might as well throw them out because those were all led by teachers who were arguing the, the nature of the Trinity, the nature of the divinity of Jesus, uh, the nature of his reliance upon the Holy Spirit and doing versus doing miracles out of his divinity. But also, like those, those things don't matter. <laughs> it, it's also really important to realize that the three of us disagree on stuff a lot. Like on air, yeah. we'll disagree with stuff. And I think that you can make the case that people who disagree and are able to maintain peace actually have a greater level of unity. The kind of unity that he is talking about isn't unity at all. It's uh, it's if you disagree, keep your head down, keep your mouth shut and walk yeah, away. Don't talk. Don't talk yeah. about it. Uh, and, and that's mm -hmm. somehow peace because no one's uncomfortable when you say, when you say, hey, you're wrong about this. This is what the Bible actually says. That makes people uncomfortable. And that's what's being interpreted as not peace um, is arguing for objective reality, objective truth, opposed to some apostle and prophet just determining the way that it is. And somehow that makes peace. Um, 
it really makes apostles and prophets lord their opinion over individuals. I, I think it's extremely unhealthy. Mil- uh, Roundtree, did you have something you wanted to say? I heard you on un- mute. Un- oh, I was just going to keep reading these quotes. Uh, what then is the role of the teacher in the church if it is not to prove that Christians are right to believe what they believe? In order for teacher, so already on that, now the role of the teacher is to feed the flock. It's to Amen. edify them. It's to strengthen them with the word of God. It's, it, it is a pejorative phrasing to say that their role is to just prove that they're right. That, that's not it. I mean, uh, certainly they care about right doctrine. Certainly their goal is to rightly divide the word of truth as the scripture exhorts them and us to do, but it's part of their pro- uh, protection against fierce wolves who will come in and ravage the flock, as Paul warns in Acts uh, chapter 20. He says, in order for uh, for teachers to play their true role in the culture of the church, they will first have to be willing to pursue a supernatural lifestyle. They will have to be dissatisfied with the armor of their arguments and the lifelessness of their theology. I I mean, oh man, to to just show grace, I I think what he what he's trying. I don't think he would say that like Christian theology in itself is lifeless. But this is just dangerous phrasing because it it suggests that unless a teacher is like submitted to the apostle, a prophet, and going after signs and wonders, that his little Bible teaching over here just doesn't matter. It's not going to bring transformation. But last I checked, um, you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. Uh, that's That's John chapter 8. So it's actually... Truth has that power. Truth has the power to set us free. And even in Ephesians 4, where it's apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, teachers, what are they training people to do? They're building up the body of Christ. But then what does that look like? Speaking the truth in love. The body is building itself up in love. And so it's actually truth that we need. And the empowerment is an empowerment for the spread of that truth. When the apostles pray in Acts chapter 4, now, Lord, consider their threats and enable your servants to speak your word with great boldness as you stretch out your hand to heal and perform uh, miraculous signs and wonders through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. It's for a spreading of truth. And so this quote downplays truth for the sake, and it promotes and elevates supernatural lifestyle. So as long as we get supernatural lifestyle first, then our theology won't be lifeless. But but no, truth trumps any sort of pursuit of the supernatural. I mean, I love yeah. the supernatural, but the Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians 14, 37, if anyone is a prophet or thinks he is a prophet, let him acknowledge that what I say to him is the Lord's command. When you get um, when you get supernatural lifestyle separated from the teacher's theology and Bible and truth, you head into some really dangerous places. And and I think that this value system, honestly, is part of what has got Bethel at times into some troubled mm-hmm. water. So it actually concerns me. Yeah. Oof. Yeah. I, I, when you talk about truth and doctrine, I mean, we, we, we saw last week, we read this phrase, um, speaking of pastors and teachers, it's a, uh, uh, their value from the world is much higher than their need for the supernatural. These are the lawyers, scribes, and Pharisees of our day, talking about teachers. So when you kind of attach those two things, when when you interpret a teacher as a personality type, and then you say that personality type is a Pharisee 
um, a scribe, a lawyer, who who are the bad guys of the Bible, if you didn't know, right? Uh, at least the way the one who crucified the Lord, and they'll they're crucify the, ones, the move of the Spirit, according yeah. to Danny Silk. Yeah, they they, they spearheaded yes. that charge. They they wanted debate and quibble over doctrine with Jesus, and and you know they're they're that's the personality type, and then you pair that with this idea that truth is a secondary thing. It's not super important. Like you really need the, this life transformation of this kind of like spiritual experience. Um, you know, I, I happened to be preaching on Colossians, uh, at Roundtree's old church this Sunday. And, um, there's a passage in chapter two that talks about visions and dreams and being puffed up by the sensuous mind going on and on about visions and dreams and worshiping of angels and those kinds of things. And then he contrasts it in chapter three with setting our heart and our mind on things above, right? Amen. Setting our heart and mind on God, which is interesting because, you know, both of them seem supernatural. One is angels, visions, being puffed up by your sensuous mind. The other one is setting your mind and heart on Jesus, right? So you can walk into this, and I think this is where we have a a dichotomy of there are spiritually, there's spiritual things, and then there's intellectual and mind things. And those two things are somehow separated in the charismatic space, as if intellectualism is somehow at war with the supernatural. However, the answer that the Bible gives to those who have an over or hyper charismatic worldview is to set their mind on Christ, their mind on Jesus, who is above, to place their mind on a spiritual thing. So uh, we've got to stop looking in the charismatic movement at teachers and doctrine as if they're somehow at war with our faith and at war with heavenly principles. Um, it's, it's not healthy at all. He's wrongly defining the sin of the Pharisees and Sadducees. Um, he's saying it as they quibble over doctrine. That's not the reason why they were condemned was for quibbling over doctrine. It's because they were hypocrites. That's right. Yeah. They, right. they would promote the right things, but would fail to do those things themselves. And sometimes they would promote things that are unscriptural above and beyond what actually is in the scripture. And that's what they were condemned for. And so when he when he says that, it, I think it, that is literally the phrase that demonizes. It basically just says that the teachers in the body of Christ are the ones who are going to kill the move of the spirit today. Uh, so and, and then he says, you'll really know when you've got a teacher running the body of uh, a church when this happens. I'm going to quote this real quick. It says when heaven stops manifesting itself in the church, Christians have to prove somehow that they are reasonable for following Jesus. When the power of the gospel is replaced by arguments, everyone should be concerned. When cancer, paralysis, tumors, and mental illness leave people's bodies and minds, we do not need, or sorry, we do not require an argument. A person experiencing the touch of heaven is proof enough that Jesus is who he says he is. Now, here's the thing. I love the miraculous. I mean, I think of, of you know, even us on this call, like, we literally are doing a conference together where that's going to be the main oh, focus yeah. is teaching on healing and deliverance. Like, I don't know anybody who knows me that would say that Michael doesn't care about the supernatural or that these things aren't flowing regularly. But I can also say this, that I know of, I'm not under an apostle. I didn't have a CEO vision from heaven type person uh, overseeing me. And yet right. for some reason, I'm still seeing these things. So tell me. Well, here, it must be because you're an apostle. How is that happening? Well, huh? I... 
Yeah, I, I mean, I think what you're getting at, Miller, though, is that you you just value the supernatural. But the thing is, you don't value it more than truth. You don't value it more than the Bible, nor would you demonize teachers and people who care about the Bible too much, I guess, as a way of valuing and promoting and elevating the supernatural. No, it's totally possible to value the power of word and the power of the spirit. In Antioch, the great mission-sending church, in Acts 13, it says they gathered together prophets and teachers, and we would do well to pair those together instead of completely separating them. Uh, Bethel, they are our brothers and sisters. I I very much believe that. Uh, But but this is a, a... And here's another thing I'll say. One thing that I I esteem about them and I think they do well is they really go after the supernatural. I think that's awesome. They I I wish all of our churches would go after the supernatural, would seek the kingdom of heaven on earth as it is in heaven. I I think they see a lot in part in terms of the miraculous. um, I think they see a lot, and I and 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 I anyway. some would dispute that they see a lot, but I, I really do think they do. Uh, but in terms of the miraculous, I think they see it because they do prioritize the supernatural. But I also think they run into trouble doctrinally because they do so at the expense of teaching and Bible. And I don't think it has to be that way. I, it sounds like sometimes it sounds like maybe changes are coming in that way. And I, and I hope they are. But I, I will tell you this. I don't think that the reason for seeing these things is rooted in some kind of spiritual government that they've set up with apostles at the top. In fact, it, it would greatly, greatly concern me if it really is true. And I'm not, you know, there at Bethel, so I don't know. But if it's really true that an apostle runs the show and culture of honor is kind of in the background, you're not supposed to touch the Lord's anointed. I just, um, it's hard for me to imagine that there is a healthy, untoxic culture there. Because it, if you have a culture where feedback's not welcome, and I'm not saying they do, but it, there's just some quotes in this book that scare me like that's a possibility, then, it, then it's hard to imagine that's a healthy culture. Agreed. Yeah. Let's read that last quote on it. And... You want me to do it? Sure, sure, sure. You mean the anointing okay. on teachers? Yeah. Oh, I thought you had read that. Oh, my bad. No, I don't think so. Uh, he says the anointing on the teachers will always cause them to have a high value for education. They will be those who believe that the, that most problems are solved through training and informing people according to the scripture. But the real change they want to see will come under the leadership of an apostolic and prophetic culture. Um, well, what do you think? I mean, I, I guess we kind of did address that very thing. We just yeah. now have the quote to say this is what they are promoting. Uh, well, here, here's... You know, when we talk about apostolic culture, you know, if you're part of the Eastern Orthodox Church watching, right, Darren, Darren P., you're, you're Eastern Orthodox, right? Uh, maybe I'm confusing you with someone else. I, I know you're always in the comment section, but uh, apostolic, having an apostolic ministry sounds great uh, if you're in the East, right? If you're, if you're watching and the idea that we have a historic, faithful, consistent message of Jesus, like that's a good thing, Right. Um, but that's not what Danny's claiming here. He's talking about teachers submitting to apostolic ministry, as in localized apostles. And these apostles, again, we're going to define some of the ways that he defines these apostles in completely unsubstantiated ways. Can, can we start reading some of these quotes over here? Uh, I, I'm going I'm to go six. Yeah. I'm going to go six A. Okay, this is a good sure, one. Sure. Okay, 
when Jesus taught the disciples to pray, uh, he brought a key phrase into the into the core values. He told them to pray, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. His instruction taught them to long for heaven on earth. I believe this core value is the primary objective of the apostles' ministry. Why? Why do you believe that, Danny? That looks like like the core value of every Christian's ministry. Like every Christian has been told to pray this prayer your kingdom mm-hmm. come, your will be done, right? Like why Why are we now just moving, cutting off parts of the Bible and saying these are apostolic, not for the rest of us? It seems completely absurd. Well, I don't yeah. think he's saying it's not for the rest of us. I think he's saying that this is, you'll, you'll notice this already to be true with those who are apostolic. Um, but again, there's no substantiating why that should be true. Right, but, it, day, I don't think but to Josh's point, I mean, take the Sermon on the Mount when it says, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. So that means uh, that we are to seek, pray for, pursue, long for, serve in such a way that this is manifested God's reign on the earth. The commission of every person is to make God's reign manifest on the earth. So to single out apostles as this, and if you read the rest of the book, to to suggest that apostles are more heavenly-minded, to me it just looks like, Hey, bring heaven to earth is the language that Bethel has adopted. And hey, it's a great language. It's Jesus's language. Um, but but they have applied it very narrowly to the apostles' ministry here. At least Danny's book does. And uh, and so I'd agree with Josh. I think that's wrong. I'm going to read but, the next quote, guys. But can I, can uh, I just, I want to hop sure. one last thought on that. Because when I said that he's cutting off other people from that prayer, it's because if people are personalities and we're going to be inclined to see certain things a certain way, then apostles are probably the only ones who are going to value that scripture verse. That that's my that's how I'm interpreting this because if we're going to see things in a certain way and apostles are heavenly minded, then this verse is for apostles. But if you're a teacher, you won't be able to see this in a heavenly way. He said that over and over unless you're already submitted to an apostle. So I I really do think it cuts up parts of the Bible uh, for the haves and the have-nots and for these some and not those. I, again, I, I'm sorry, I, I'm I'm beating a dead horse at this point. Go ahead, Roundtree, you can read that next one. Sure. Yeah, read the next. Yeah. One. It's as though as God himself has given blueprints to certain individuals to reproduce heaven on the earth. Along with the blueprint, the anointing of the apostle contains a quality that stimulates and draws to the surface the diverse anointings in the people around him. As those around the apostle begin to manifest their own unique anointings, it creates an environment of subcontractors who help the master builder to realize the blueprints of heaven. Okay, so, um, all right, so I'm going to be a little devil's advocate here. Maybe Danny is saying here, hey, this is for all of us to bring heaven to earth. All of us are supporting the uh, vision of bringing heaven to earth. Some of us just might be more like subcontractors and some of us are more like master builders, but we're all doing it. Uh, Miller, what do you think? Is that Do you think that's a, a possible way to take that quote? No. <laughs> no. No, absolutely not. I, and the way I saw this implemented was that that person, that apostolic leader, genuinely thinks he's got some sort of new blueprint from heaven on how to uh, start a movement of uh, heaven on earth. Um, and I I would push back on anybody. I mean, you, you go ask anybody mm-hmm. who's got one of these kind of churches who has an apostolic leader at the top, and I guarantee that's literally what they've come to come up with. They've right. got some well, new you, way to you've hit the state. Yeah, you hit the nail on the head. It's the first part of the quote where he talks about it's the apostle that receives the blueprints so that 
everybody else, the subcontractors, the pastors, the teachers, the evangelists, the administrators, all these other gifts, they're just supporting an apostle's blueprint vision. That's really the big the big problem with this, that the apostle knows how to bring heaven to earth in a way that nobody else does. And he knows this by special revelation. And uh, so Miller and Josh, you guys had experiences in churches like this. Is it possible that that apostle's vision that they claim is a download from heaven is actually not a download from heaven and that it's unbiblical or even anti-biblical? Man, I... Miller's got more experience <laughs> than I do in this. Uh, I, I don't think that my church's mission or vision ever became askewed uh, from the Great Commission because of our leadership. I really don't. Um, you know, there was a guy who came in after Steve got sick. If y'all don't know, uh, I, in my teen years, I was raised at Heartland, which is a church that Steve Hill planted Um in 2000 after the Brownsville revival. So, uh, you know, I was there, Steve was all about souls, you know, uh, evangelism, that kind of thing. So just preaching faith and repentance was just his thing. Now, when he got sick, there was a guy who came in named Sam Hen, um, who for four years pastored the church. Um, we didn't know, but it came out later that he had committed adultery on his wife for that, that whole period was, had an affair, that he was running. Uh, it was a pretty rough thing. But but one of the things that he would preach all the time was how God had revealed to him the connection of the the calendar years, right? The Hebrew calendars. This is year 57, 70, whatever. And he would preach sermons, not based off of scripture, but based off of these revelations of Jewish calendar years, which Dr. Michael Brown has come on and talked about how that's Jewish mysticism and just completely untethered from the New Testament. Um, and we've done tons of episodes recently uh, in particular, who's who's the guy Roundtree that we did responses to uh, Open Door Church? Can't think of his name. Anyway, <laughs> yeah, yeah, I that whole calendar that. thing. I remember the episode, but I can't remember. Uh, it was in Burleson, Texas, if I remember right. Yeah, but uh, yeah, we've done I, a lot I'll, of these, and the, and I just hear about this all the time. The secret meaning of this Hebrew word. Even though it's like you're looking at like the Greek New Testament, <laughs> you know, you're like the Hebrew word for this Greek word and the secret meaning and um, secret meanings in words, secret meanings in in calendar dates, and and because so much like end time stuff is like you know people people get so like stuck in this Israel thing that they're mm-hmm. like they're tr- like if somebody like take Jonathan Kahn, if somebody is like a Messianic Jew. They just take to the bank everything that he says, even though he had like a really false prediction in September of 2015 that the market was going to crash and then doubled down on it and sold more uh, books and Troy Brewer. and so on. But but now I, I I digress. I don't I don't think this has anything to do with culture Let, of honor, but it makes me mad still. Yeah, no, it, it was it was Troy Brewer and, that we, we had done That's videos right. kind of engaging some of that stuff on, but. The, even the reason I bring it up is it's because it was by some kind of divine revelation that these things are being preached on. And and we're going to do an episode probably next week on um, what spiritual leadership looks like in a charismatic church, because we do believe that God can speak to leaders, but that's not something that we preach from, nor is it something that we, we govern by. We don't create practices or things like that. So um, I digress. Miller, you've had apostolic leaders over you that would literally tell you, <laughs> don't, don't do this part of the Great Commission. We're only doing this thing over here. Um, I mean, he, the, the way that that came out was a bit different. Like, so I remember saying, Hey, we're not making disciples. And his response to me was, we're making disciples every Sunday. And it was like, okay. But then I also remember him telling people 
and others around him that were sort of his, you know, clonies, lackeys saying, are you going to submit to his vision? He just won't submit, you know, like those kind of things. But, but when they say his vision, it wasn't always clear how any of us weren't submitted to his vision. Um, and unless, unless it was just that you didn't pray in the prayer room, because that's what he thought was to be the vision of the church. Um, and the language of the vision statement is that it is prayer room language. So he, he basically took the vision of the church and narrowed it down to a singular ministry, which is where I think it disqualifies himself and his church from actually being a church. But I think the, 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 the real symptom here is this, and you guys can kind of push back if you want to. I really don't have a problem with having a church vision statement, but I do think the fact that you can't find a church vision statement attached to any church more than 60 years ago tells you that maybe that's because a church vision statement is a novelty. Yeah. It's not something historic. And like that, I mean, just that right there. Can you think of one church? Can you name a church that had a church vision statement? Um, again, not to say that having one is Antioch, wrong. Antioch, sending uh, missionaries to the ends of the... I'm just kidding. I'm making it Yeah, yeah. <laughs> we were all... All <laughs> of us were point. like, whoa, he's going to do it. But this bleeds into the very next quote, which is worth reading. It says, the following are some of the key characteristics of apostolic environment and culture. So, Ooh. and And this is where I'm going to find it slightly ironic because he's saying, no, no, an apostolic leader has to go to heaven to get this brand new vision. But then he's basically going to tell you what the apostolic vision would be. It says, worship and supernatural activity are priorities in the environment and the lifestyle of the saints because God's presence is the top priority. So there's your, there's your vision. It's got to be God's presence. The saints are sent as Jesus was to destroy the works of the devil, including disease, sickness, and affliction. This, now, see, like, I have no problem with that. I'm like, yes, that should be part of it. That's part of making disciples. The sanctifying process of a new disciple is that they get delivered of demonic spirits, they get healed of sicknesses, and they come into the faith. Um, where, where I have a problem with this is this idea that that as a vision maker, person, apostle, uh, <laughs> it doesn't make sense. These things are, he, he's, he's contradicting himself here. So he says, the saints live to demonstrate to all the people of the earth that God is always the good guy and the devil is always the bad guy. Well, unless you're evil. Uh, then you're going to see God as the bad guy. The kingdom of God is joy in the Holy Spirit. Therefore, church is to be a place of exceeding abundant joy. God desires those who don't yet know him to come into a relationship with him where primary emphasis is love, not merely service. The body of Christ is being built up and equipped to become a glorious, victorious bride, no matter how the conditions of earth may presently appear. The church is to create a global awakening and impact. Seven successive generations must be equipped to carry and demonstrate the kingdom revelation. Um, there's a lot about this that I like, but I just call it making disciples of all nations. Right. Yeah. That, it's like when we talk about unsubstantiated claims and culture of honor, an apostle creates cultures that emphasize worship music. I'd love to know his source material for that claim. Like, again, what I think is happening is Danny is looking at individuals who everyone in his community is calling an apostle, which we'll say is Bill, since he calls Bill an apostle in his book. And he says, these are the things that Bill is passionate about. And Bill's transitioning out of this pastoral role into an apostolic role. So look at the things that he's really passionate about. Oh, okay. So now I'm looking at Bill and I'm going to create a personality sketch of Bill that says, this is what an apostle is. 
And these seven things or six things, yeah, seven things that are mentioned here in this book are all things that Bill Johnson is all about. And then what he's doing is he's transposing that onto all of the church and saying, if you're an apostle, then you look like Bill Johnson. I just don't think that's helpful. I, I just, I, again, it's, it's over-realized personality types. Yeah. And it, even when I look at it, so the kingdom of God is joy in the Holy Spirit. So that's Romans 15. Can't argue with Romans 15. It's the Bible. Uh, therefore, church is to be a place of exceeding abundant joy. I generally agree with that. The church in Acts grew in joy and in the Holy Spirit. And yes, church should be a place of joy. But I also just happen to, I, I remember, uh, so it, uh, a church leader came to me and they, they were talking about their children's ministry. And they said, hey, you know, someone, we use Bethel materials for our children's ministry. We taught their lesson. It said, God is always in a good mood was the lesson for the day. We just keep emphasizing God is always in a good mood. And, um, you know, one of the parents gave me feedback, like, hey, sometimes God gets mad. And, you know, what do you think? And so we kind of talked through that. And I, and I said, it's overly simplistic to say that God's always in a good mood. Um, yes, God is a God of abundant joy. God is in the heavens. He does as he pleases, but he does have wrath. He does have judgment. I, I guess maybe they got that from Luke 4, where it says, you know, today is the day of the Lord's favor. Um quoting Isaiah 61. So maybe they got it from that. Um, but I, I do know I that that sort of triumph, I, I do think that's, they do believe in a God of wrath. They, they do. But um, I, I think that sometimes church won't look very joyful. Okay. I think, you know, Acts chapter 20, the Ephesian elders, they're, they're weeping on the beach because Paul is going off to die in Jerusalem. I mean, a church that's like on the front lines where they're where like martyrdom is a real threat or first Corinthians five. I'm sure it wasn't like a real pleasant church meeting that day when they publicly disciplined a dude who was sleeping with his stepmom. Uh, or, you know, the book of Hebrews was a, was a sermon. I mean, have you read it before? It's, it's strong. <laughs> you know, I'm sure when they got to the five warnings in Hebrews 2 and Hebrews 4 and Hebrews 6 and 10 and 12, and uh, I'm sure that people were like trembling. I, I mean, yes, it's a place of joy, but I just think it's too simplistic. I, I think that this is the danger with defining an apostolic culture in such a way is that we can just pick and choose what we think an apostolic culture is because as it turns out, the Bible doesn't really tell us to build apostolic cultures. It tells us to make disciples. And so I, I don't know. I just think that it's it just gets a little picky and choosy with the scriptures is my take. No, I I agree. I've got a question from Joseph. I don't Miller, did you see that question in there? Uh no. Which okay, one was I'm gonna, it? I'm it's gonna, hard to keep up with the chat today. I'm gonna toss this question up here. Okay. I want you guys to answer this. I think this will be good. Good conversation starter. Why can't someone get a new blueprint? Isn't that the core of Mike Bickle's ministry? I think they literally call it the blueprint prophecy. Bam, bam, bam. <laughs> well, Where so I, go? I can't answer. I can't answer anything about Bickle and the blueprint prophecy, but I also haven't heard that stuff. Okay. You guys would know better than well, I know about the, the Bickle. thing is the. I mean, Josh, you can help me out on this, but according to my recollection, they haven't actually told anyone what the blueprint prophecy was, right? Like, That's wasn't it more like the build up to the blueprint prophecy was the big thing? Yeah. So I. I don't think that there's like this, um, like, hey, if you use the word blueprint in 
a sermon series or in a um, vision talk or whatever it is as a church, or even if it's part of a prophetic, like, I don't think that the word blueprint is like illegal for Christians to use. I think it can be used. Paul does say first Corinthians Same three, vision. he's a wise master builder. I think it's okay to use the word blueprint. And I don't think that makes Mike Bickle a heretic. I don't can think I, it means that he's doing the wrong thing. I, uh, yeah, Josh, go ahead. Yeah. Can I say that remnant radio is a blueprint, right? Like God you told us to me do something. That. <laughs> no, I'm just saying, like, God God told us to do something, so sure. we did something. This isn't a yeah, church. There you go. We're not walking around saying Remnant Radio is a church, and IHOP is a prayer house, not yeah, a church. Our real, pro- here's, and that, our real problem with the language of blueprint as it pertains to churches is God gives his blueprint in his word for what makes for a healthy church. And when an apostolic leader comes with a so-called blueprint or a so-called vision that excludes what the Bible says church is supposed to be about, then that is an unbiblical blueprint. That's what we have a problem with. Yeah, the problem is, is that many of these quote-unquote apostolic churches can quickly digress to just mere ministries if they don't have a full understanding of what church is clearly spelled out to be in the scriptures, which we've done episodes on that very thing. Um, and I, Joseph is responding saying IHOP is a church. He is incorrect. Actually, I don't think IHOP, IHOP is, is not, not a church. church. Yeah, IHOP, I think they have a church that a meets in their facility. Forerunner Christian Fellowship is, is a, a church, church that Mike Bickle goes to <laughs> and lots of IHOP people go to, but IHOP is carefully distinguished from the church. And, and it's really important that we do that because there are tons of parachurches today. If someone uh, in a congregation, young life. Michael, I was in Young Life for years. Yeah, if, if Michael Roundtree or Michael Miller had someone in their church come up and say, hey, I feel like God has told me to go feed homeless people. Like, I am I'm, I'm, I don't want to start a prayer ministry. Um, you know, I don't want to uh, try to think of, you know, I'm not, I'm not really want to do any in-depth teachings of scripture. I just want to go feed homeless people and tell them that Jesus loves them. Um, do some introduction to evangelism. I'm not going to do any discipleship. Uh, I'm not going to do any prophecy. I'm just, I just feel called to feed people and tell them about Jesus. No one here is going to say no to that because they're not starting a church and saying, I'm going to do these parts of church ministry and not those parts. What they're saying is I'm a part of the body of Christ and I'm called to do this thing. And we would just say, yes, go for it. Um, and, and to Bickle, I, I would just say that Bickle's got a house of prayer um, and that their house of prayer is doing what they told, what God told them to do. Uh, Praise God. I'm all for it. And I, I hope you guys I imagine have they have separate finances as well. Is that right? I don't know anything I, about their structure. I, I don't think that we even have, have time or energy to dive into the ecclesiological structure of IHOP. And I, we'll probably end up getting it wrong anyway. Um, but it is, again, neither here nor there. I, I do think, well, I know because we've talked to both Isaac, who is the pastor of, uh, was it Forerunner Church, uh, and uh, Bickle on multiple occasions on how uh, these kinds of things function and operate. And IHOP is a university and prayer house that is com- that that is not a local church. Um, so there's that. So anyway, um, do you guys want to wrap up here? Let's go with uh, one yeah, more. I'll read one last statement, unsubstantiated claim. Okay, this we'll finish with this one. It says, when an apostle pursues his or her calling without the other ministry graces in place. Several real issues creep into the environment and threaten success for the apostolic leader. 
unusual manifestations not found in the Bible, unprecedented scenarios and styles, an uncomfortable focus on the supernatural, and noticeable inattention to the needs of the people begin to create friction for any apostolic leader. All the people can see is the distance growing between them and the apostle. As the people's needs go unmet, they can begin to resent the way the apostle is choosing to use his or her time. Travel, meetings, connections with other apostolic leaders, and prayer seem like luxurious expenditures of time when the needs of the people are screaming in their own ears. Okay, Josh Miller, does one of you guys want to uh, respond to what makes this quote unsubstantiated? Gosh, I think the thing well, is, because here's here's the thing it's talking about. Go ahead. <laughs> well, I just uh, there's truth in this sense that people's uh, the church can be neglected if that's what the senior leader is doing. But the problem is there's nothing in scripture to say that that's what the senior leader should be doing. And there's nothing in scripture that says that this is what will happen when that's when the senior leader is doing those things. This all, is just probably a all experientially driven. Also, every example in the Bible that we have of apostles doing ministry, the the exact opposite happened. Michael Roundtree with the the banger over my there. My bad, I've been uh, muting my microphone. No, you're good. Hey, it was a it was a <laughs> solid jam. I get it. Um, but here's the thing: uh, several real issues creep into the environment and threaten success for apostolic leaders. So when Paul and Barnabas planted churches, um. When 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 did they have pastors and teachers working alongside them, right? They brought the gospel to those regions and people got saved. And then those people that were in those communities begin to experience spiritual gifts, right? So they didn't walk around with a five-fold missionary team. Uh, it was just Paul and Barnabas. And sometimes they took Timothy and sometimes they took uh, John Mark. And, and you have these kinds of accounts where, in, you know, Luke tags along every once in a while. Um, the idea that... If a pastor is governing a group of people, caring for a group of people, and that church is growing, this is one thing that I did like about Alan Hirsch when he was talking about fivefold ministry, was that God will supernaturally grace you. If you're on an island of people who've never heard the gospel, and you're an evangelist, and you go there and you preach the gospel, God is going to bring pastoral and evangelistic graces to that community. Uh, they're going to blossom within that community because God always gives the body what it needs. Um, so I, I just, I think that, again, not only is this unsubstantiated, we have the exact opposite example given in scripture where only apostles go and do ministry and healthy, fruitful churches blossom. So, man, I'm, I'm frustrated because one of the questions that just came in from Heidi, is there going to be a discussion from culture of honor about church discipline and application? We have a lot of notes, Heidi. And it's literally the next section. It. We may, we may have to do a third episode, um, about that because I actually think it's a major component of what they call the culture of honor. And they, they would attribute their way of doing church discipline to the reason why they see the level of miracles and healings they see. Um, so I, I actually think it's an incredibly important conversation to have. Um, yeah. You guys want to respond to that? Should we do a third yeah, episode? We'll, oh, I mean, yeah, we we'll can't do, do it now. Yeah, we can't do it now, but we will. Jace. Jace, we'll do another episode. <laughs> We're going to use these notes for sure. Yeah. Anyway. Uh, <laughs> okay. We, All right. Well, that's a good time to tie up the episode. Oh, someone put yeah. Sweet Child. I think they're quoting my ringtone. It's sweet They child are, yeah. They I are. love that that's your yeah. ringtone. <laughs> so Is it cool. only for your wife or does, do you get that when I call you too? Um, when you call me because, Josh, you are a sweet child of mine. 
Yeah. I'm going to call you right now. <laughs> To see. Okay, so just as a closing <laughs> reminder, this conference, if you haven't already registered for it, you need to do it right now. Go into the comment section or the description section of this video, a little drop down arrow underneath the video, and, and click the registration link there. You need to you need to go to that conference. There are uh, there are for sure going to be the four of us there. <laughs> I don't know what else to promise. <laughs> it's going to be a cool conference. We're talking about healing and deliverance. It will show up too. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I, I'm, I'm, I've invited the Holy Spirit. I really hope he shows up or else it's going to, it's going to stay. He never gives me an RSVP. That's the he problem. Never, you know? Yeah. I just don't know. Anyway. Um, <laughs> make I was sure about to, like, to say, and he never comes strong. when you're preaching. So, that's, that's too strong. Even for a joke. <laughs> that's okay. All the crap I give you guys. It's okay. Okay, guys. Thank you so much for tuning in this episode of Remnant Radio. You can like, share, and subscribe to the video. We would encourage you to do that. It helps us move up in the YouTube algorithms. And, and maybe do a thing where you share this video to somebody. You're like, hey, um, there are people who I know who've been hurt in charismatic spaces. I, I find that this video and videos like this have been really edifying to people. So maybe share it around, like the video, that kind of thing. And if you want to support the channel, there are links in the description that you can give. So uh, anyway, we'll see you guys next Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday from 4 to 5 p.m. Central Standard Time. Blessings. We'll see you next time. I want to thank Kairos Classrooms for sponsoring this episode of Remnant Radio. And if you're out there, you've ever wondered, hey, I wonder if learning a biblical language would be a supplemental tool for me to help me in my biblical studies. Well, you need to check out Kairos Classrooms. They offer Greek and Hebrew classes that can help teach you and train you. It's a live classroom environment with actual students and actual live teachers, and they help teach you the biblical languages of Greek and Hebrew. And you need to check out Kairos Classrooms today. There's a link in the description, and you can use the promo code REMNANT to get 10% off. These classes are already crazy affordable, but with the promo code REMNANT, R-E-M-N-A-N-T, you'll get 10% off of Kairos Classroom. So check that out today. And thank you so much for Kairos for sponsoring this episode of REMNANT Radio.